Well, good morning. If we haven't met yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at the Oaks. Uh, whether you are a first-time guest or you call the Oaks Church home, grateful that you are here as we continue our study through the book of Mark. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and find Mark 14. Uh, we're going to continue to look at this series that we've been called, calling Walking with Jesus. Now, um, as you turn there, I want to give just two quick updates. Uh, first, I know that uh, with some of the news about the earthquakes in Turkey, many of you have asked if our missionaries are safe and okay, and our missionaries are safe. Uh, they're uh, quite a ways away from where that took place. Um, but I also, you know, want to urge you to pray for the people of Turkey. Uh, right now, the death toll is nearing around 30,000. And uh, we have, there's an organization that we partner with called Cinder Leaf, and they have people on the ground there that are serving warm meals and uh, that are, you know, sharing the gospel with people. And so pray that uh, the Lord would just show his faithfulness even during a time of, of great hurt and great sorrow as, uh, as we pray that many would be made brothers and sisters through even this tragedy. Um, I also want to give you guys an update on where we're at with the building. So, uh, you know, we voted as a church to make an offer on the building, and we are officially under contract. Yeah, so, so it's exciting. So for those of you that don't know, about six minutes away from here, there's a building in Silverton that we've been uh, talking about, looking at for a while, and uh, we have made an offer. That offer was officially accepted, and so it looks like closing day will be April 5th right now. Uh, we'll do some renovations probably for a couple months after that, and then maybe get in, you know, summer or, you know, be in by the fall, that kind of thing. We don't, we don't know, but I uh, did want to give an update in regards to that. Now, looking at Mark 14, I think one of the reasons that I love Mark 14 is because it just gives us such a good view of who Christ is and the way Christ loves us. It uh, reminds me of this gift that I got about you know, two years ago at this point, one of those small action cameras uh, that you can like put on a helmet or whatever. The reason that I love how durable it is is because I have no problem putting it into the hands of my five-year-old, which has provided some of the best videos that we have. Uh, you know, I, will, I will let him have this action camera and he's running through you know, the playground or we're hiking on a trail or something and he's got this thing and it's got this you know, stabilizing feature so that you can actually watch it without getting nauseous. And uh, we went to Ziegler Park about a year ago. Um, if, if you know where that is, there's this big grass hill. And so you can like see it from his point of view, you know, it's like this tall and it's just running up the hill and he gets to the top and then you get to see the camera angle go horizontal. And you're like, what is about to happen here? And then for the next 20 seconds, it's him holding the camera right here and just rolling down the hill. So if you have motion sickness, this is not the video for you because it's like sky grass, sky grass, sky grass, like the whole way down until he like flips the camera around and it's just like his whole face fills the frame. And he's like, that was awesome. You know, he runs back up the hill to do it again. And I think one of the reasons that, you know, my wife and I cherish those videos is because you get to like hear his commentary whenever he's at the top of the slide, like about to go down or, you know, you get to hear all the sound effects that he's making as he's like skipping, you know, from one rock to another in the playground. And it gives you this perspective that, that you've never had before. You're thinking about things completely differently. And uh, although not like that, similar to that, when we come to the book of Mark, we get to see this grace of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, the life of Jesus from the perspective of the Apostle Peter. 
And whenever we're looking at, at this book, we're reminded that John Mark was a dear friend of Peter's, kind of uh, an apprentice of Peter's in a lot of ways. And so he, he's writing these things as he's probably heard Peter share these stories again and again and again. And I love that because whenever I come to this, this book, and you know, especially this part where we're going to see you know, Jesus foretelling of Peter's denial and going through the Garden of Gethsemane and his suffering there, and then you know, the betrayal of Jesus and everybody you know, leaving Jesus, abandoning him to be alone, you get to see for a, for a moment, how does Jesus respond to me whenever I fail? What, what was the cup of suffering that was pressed to Christ's lips that he would take on himself for me? Uh, we come to the book of Mark and we, it's almost like we get to like stand there and really behold our Savior and the way that he interacts with sinners. And so to summarize this passage in a single sentence, I, I, would, I would put it something like this, that Jesus drank the cup of suffering to save sinners like us. What do I want you to walk away with? That you would understand that Jesus drank the cup of suffering to save sinners like us. We're not hypothetical sinners. We're not just people who kind of fail. No, we are dead people that Christ makes live. We are sinners that Christ came to suffer for that he may save us. Now, as we look at Mark 14, 26 through 52, we've got the opportunity uh, to join the disciples as they leave the table of the Lord's Supper, and then they're going to walk to the Mount of Olives. Now, on this night, Jesus has a very hard conversation with his disciples in which he says, the shepherd will be struck, I will be struck, and all of the sheep will flee. You will all leave me. And, and then, you know, they say, no, we won't. Like, we're not going to do that to you. And then he, he takes them into the garden, and you see the, the prayer of Jesus, where he pours out his soul. He's deeply distressed and sorrowful even to death, he will say. And then, and then as he's praying, as he's talking to his disciples, immediately Judas and those who would arrest him come. And, and even in this moment where things seem absolutely chaotic, Jesus says the words, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Now, his sovereignty is woven throughout this entire narrative, that Christ is completely in control. Isn't it comforting to us whenever we look at one of the darkest scenes in history to look at how stable Christ is, the one who upholds the universe? Perhaps that would give you even some comfort this morning as you consider your own life. We look at this passage and we see that Christ came into the world to save the world, that Christ was born into the world to die for it, that he drank the cup of suffering to save sinners like us. Now, in the first half of, of this sermon, we're just going to walk through the text. Um, so we're just going to have the slides kind of rolling through each verse. I want to saturate our minds in these verses before us uh, to where we kind of, you know, flip over some rocks and kind of look at what we're, what's really in front of us. And then the second half of the sermon, I want to draw three contrasts that we see in Christ's suffering uh, and, and the way that this helps us understand what Christ has truly done for us. So with that being said, let's read Mark 14. We're just going to pick up uh, in verse 26, and we'll read 26 through 31 to begin with. The Word of God says this, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. 
And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Now let's stop right there for a moment. If you have a heading in your Bible, it probably is similar to mine, or it says that Jesus foretells Peter's denial. Now this is not a part of scripture, but it kind of summarizes the, the text that we read that follows. Uh, I want you to understand here that, uh, as I said, Peter is, you know, giving all of this to Mark from his perspective. And what we find in the book of Mark, especially this chapter, is that Peter is not the hero here. In fact, he is addressing his weakness to make much of the grace and mercy of Christ. Uh, Peter, you know, what we know is that later on, whenever uh, a sword strikes the ear of one of the servants, the disciple is unnamed. John says that's Peter, but Peter leaves himself anonymous here because he doesn't want to be seen as the hero at all. He is magnifying the grace of God made known to us in Christ. I hope that's your story, that you're able to acknowledge your weakness, that you're able to expose your sin, to be vulnerable about who you are, to make much of God who is merciful. We keep reading, we see that they had sung a hymn. This is most likely Psalm 115 through 118 because that would have closed the Passover celebration that they just had. That's the ending of the Hallel. And then they went to the Mount of Olives. We know that uh, by Jewish custom, they would have had to celebrate the Passover meal in Jerusalem. So now they leave Jerusalem, they head through the Kidron Valley going up the Mount of Olives. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, where we will find them later, is kind of on the, the foot of the Mount of Olives. And so now they're, they're going to the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus said that they will all fall away. He's making that very clear. This is going to happen. And then he quotes scripture saying from Zechariah 13, 7, the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. Now, this is interesting because whenever you look at Zechariah 13, you see that the one who is the shepherd is one who comes from the house of David, the same one who fulfills the promise that, that he will sit on the everlasting throne of David, and that he will be open as a fountain to cleanse from sin when he is struck. He says, the shepherd will be struck and all the sheep will be scattered. And then look at verse 28. I, I think that I have read over verse 28 and never really let it sink in until this week. Because Jesus then makes a promise. He says, after I am raised up, he's saying, I'm going to be struck, but I will be resurrected again. And I will go before you to Galilee. He's saying, you are all going to deny me. You're all going to abandon me. And yet my resurrection is going to change everything. You will disappoint me. And yet whenever I am raised, I will gather you together again in Galilee. Whenever you run back to your homes, I'll, I'll gather you again together. Here, here I think we see the, the reconciliation that Christ offers us even whenever we have failed him. The restoration that Christ can bring even among fellow Christians, that he brings among people, that he can gather them again. And that would be needed because Peter's next words are, are going to show that he has high self-confidence and little confidence in the guys that are walking with them. He says, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Essentially, I mean, this is a stronger way to put it, but Peter is calling Jesus a liar. Jesus just said, all of you will fall away. And he's saying, no, no, these guys, they might, right? These other 10, like, I don't know about them. But me, I am not going to fall away. 
right? It's just full of pride, full of self-confidence. And then Jesus, with great specificity, talks about how he will deny him. He said, truly, the same word as amen, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And you would almost expect that Peter's like, oh, wow, like, you know, humbled. But then he doubles down and he says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And then all of the other disciples, they said the exact same thing. They said, yeah, we also will deny you, or we also will not deny you. We also will stand with you and die for you if we have to. And the story continues, and they go to Gethsemane. Verse 32, we'll read this text together. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. This would have been a place that we know from Scripture that uh, Jesus and his disciples often went to pray. It was a place that was quiet, a place that was still, a place that also would have been well known by Judas. And they go to this Garden of Gethsemane, and it's interesting that the name Gethsemane literally means oil press. Uh, Gats is press, Shimon is oil, and so uh, it's, it describes the way that an olive is pressed, is crushed by the weight that rolls over it to, to deliver the oil that it gives. Now, in the same way that Christ was about to be crushed to provide salvation for the world, they go into this garden together and he begins to pray. He tells eight of his disciples, hey, you sit here while I pray, and then he takes what is often referred to as the inner circle a little bit further into the garden with him. Well, we know that that is Peter and James and John. He invites his friends to pray with him, to pray for him during this time. And what do we read? That he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. This passage makes much of the humanity of Christ. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And here we see his humanity on display, that he is greatly distressed and troubled. His, his sorrow is described in his own words whenever he says, my soul is very sorrowful even to death, remain here and watch. And going a little further, his body buckles under the weight of the responsibility before him. He fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. We often say at the Oaks that uh, prayer should be our first response, not our last res resort. And I think here we can look to the life of Jesus and see that he models this whenever he is in, in great anguish and distress that he cries out to the Father. Look at his prayer. He says, Abba, Father, acknowledging the intimate relationship that they have. 
He says, all things are possible for you. He knows the omnipotence of God the Father greater than we can fathom. He cries out, he says, all things are possible for you. He says, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup of suffering, of the cross, yet not what I will, but what you will. This is instructive for us, isn't it? Uh, Whenever we are in deep distress to cry out to God the Father, uh, to, to acknowledge who he is, how great he is, how mighty he is, how sovereign he is, how good he is, how faithful he is, and then to pray with open hands, Lord, this is my will. God, this is what I, I desire. This is what I want. You know, the desires of my heart. And yet, not my will, but your will be done. As, as Christ prayed that, he models for us that we can pray that as well. To make matters worse, Jesus finds his disciples asleep. Verse 37, he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? I don't want to make too much of this, but, but he doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon, the name that he often went by before he was a follower of Jesus. He says, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Jesus comes back, and again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest Remember the charge that he gave them at the end of Mark 13? He says, stay awake. He's talking about being ready for the end times and he charges them saying, stay awake, stay awake. He's telling them to do spiritually what they are unable to do here physically. And they're groggy, they're tired. And what does Jesus say? He says, it is enough. I think we get to see kind of the the difference in Christ's demeanor even now after he's spent time in prayer. He says, it is enough. He says, let us be going. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed. Now, the the phrase, the Son of Man, the title that he gives himself right there, hold on to that. Hold on to that for next week because in verse 62, whenever he is on trial, he's going to talk about being the Son of Man who will come in great power and in glory. So he's saying, here I am, Christ, the, the eternal second person of the Trinity taking on flesh, the Son of Man, and yet you will see me exalted in the days to come. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And then Mark uses his favorite word right there in the next verse. He says, immediately, he wants us to show you just how chaotic things are about to get, just how fast things are going, and yet Christ is a, a non-anxious presence through the whole thing. Look at verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Those three groups, chief priests, scribes, and elders, uh, make up the Sanhedrin, kind of like the supreme court of Jewish life. And they come, verse 44, now the betrayer, that is Judas, had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those, who we know is Peter, who stood by, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. 
Now, what, what, is, what is going on here? I mean, I mean, this whole event, right? Jesus is praying. He's talking to his disciples. They're sleepy. And, and then things begin to just kind of unfold rapidly. Judas enters in. Now, in, in Mark's account, we, we, don't, we don't know that Judas left, right? And so there's kind of some suspense building. We know from the other gospels that, that Jesus dismissed him. And yet here, it's like Judas appears again. And, and they see that he is coming and there's guys with clubs and swords. And then he walks toward Jesus and, and he places a kiss on his cheek and lingers for a moment. And he says, Rabbi, just to, just to make sure that everybody knows exactly who to go for when they all disperse, when they start to run. And they seize him. And, and Jesus points to kind of their ill will whenever he says, hey, I was, I was teaching every day in the temple. And yet, what did they say at the beginning of Mark 14? They said, we gotta, we gotta figure out how to do this in kind of a sneaky way because there, there will be an uproar that will begin if we do this in the light of the day in somewhere public like the temple. So all of this begins to unfold. We, we see Peter who, you know, at least to some extent came ready for a fight because he pulls out a sword, cuts off this guy's ear. And, and we know from other accounts that Jesus heals the man's ear. He says, look, I could call down legions of angels if I want. But, but this is that scripture would be fulfilled. Everything was going according to plan in the hand of God. Every second passes under the permission of Christ. And this was no exception. And then, and then Mark adds this one detail. It's just kind of perplexing to us. He tells us about this young guy who, who's wearing a linen cloth, and then he's kind of, you know, in the background, and then he runs away, and one of the guards grabs the blanket, which was the only thing that he's wearing, and he runs away naked. And that's just, I mean, it just shows kind of the chaotic nature of what is taking place here. Now, I will say um, there is some speculation that this is Mark. This is the author, Mark, who is talking about whenever he was there. Now, we could get into that and how, um, you know, he came from like a wealthy background and the fact that it was linen, not wool is kind of, you know, maybe that was it. And then in Acts 12, they're praying at Mark's house, which would have been maybe the place where the upper room, you know, dinner would have happened. So he would have known like where to follow them into the garden. And there's like so much there if you really want to get into that. Um, but the Bible doesn't say it. So we're not going to like make it a big thing. I think here we, we understand what happens? This is just one more person that, that fled the scene. Here the shepherd was struck. Jesus is alone in the garden. All of his followers have left, and he is being seized. He's being arrested, and, and he is he's fulfilling the plan that he had before time began. Uh, so so now, that, now that our minds are saturated in, in the text in front of us, I mean, I, I love doing this because I know that so many of you, I mean, you lead Bible studies at work or, you know, missional community groups or, you know, like read one-on-one -on -one with other people. And so, man, if, if I can do anything, it's, it's just, you know, help walk you through the text because, man, I, I know that you guys are doing this same kind of thing through the week. And, and so now I, can, I just kind of want to revisit what we just saw and, and look at this and say, okay, what are three contrasts that are apparent here to us in the suffering of Christ uh, that, that help us kind of grapple with where we're at, how we relate to God. So the first contrast displayed through Christ's suffering is that Jesus gathers through his resurrection those that are scattered by sin. Jesus gathers through his resurrection those that are scattered by sin. The passage before us shows the greatest test of loyalty that any of the disciples would face. 
And what happens? It's almost like a poorly built bridge that, you know, for everyday use is fine. You know, people walk across it, bicycles drive over it, maybe small cars, no big deal, right? It's just kind of everyday life. Uh, So far, you know, they've done some, you know, controversy in the temple, but things have been fairly okay. But then take that same poorly built bridge and drive a semi-truck over it, and what will you realize? And there, there is some lack of support here. There are some giant cracks in the pavement. There is something that, that can't stand the test. And here, this is, this is the disciples' test. And what will we see? Look at the way that they are described. The pressure of Christ's arrest, the stress of what is going on whenever the shepherd is struck cause, causes the sheep to flee. In verse 27, we see that they are disloyal and unreliable. They said that they would not fall away. And what happens? Man, they take off running. Verse 29, they are self-assured and prideful. Peter's unwavering in his commitment. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to stick it out with you all the way. And what happens? Man, it doesn't happen. And we see, in fact, that he will deny Jesus three times. They are tired, they are apathetic, and they are unconcerned. In verse 37, Jesus finds his disciples and they're sleeping. He's saying, watch with me. This is my hour. Pray with me. And what do we find? Man, they're tired. Kind of, I mean, they got other stuff going on. They're, they're weak. And then how are they described at the end? They're deserters. They abandon Christ. They're more concerned about their self-interest than their Savior. In verse 50, we see that Jesus is alone despite the empty promises that they had made him. And don't we wish that these descriptions could only be applied to the disciples? Don't we wish that unreliable, apathetic, that these things only could be describing those who left him in the garden that night. And yet we recognize that not not a single one of us has an unblemished record, not a single one of us. Consider these labels for a moment and examine your own heart. We are often disloyal and unreliable. Our devotion is undermined by the fact that we we are a lot of times prideful like Peter. Oh yeah, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, sure, I, I did this, but it was just, it was, a, it was a weird week. I mean, we, we think about ourselves so much, even if it's not like, like pride like we normally see it, even in self-pity, just so concerned about ourselves and not concerned with Christ. We're often cold, we're unconcerned about the things of God. Like this, the disciples in the garden, we find ourselves drifting to sleep whenever we think about those that are around us that, that don't know Christ. Uh, we, we find ourselves just kind of like putting things into coast and uh, instead of actually considering what it means to, to be intentional about having a Christ-centered marriage or being a godly parent or, or leading your friends to know Christ and to share the love of God with the world around you. Left to ourselves, we would abandon Jesus. And yet this stark contrast, the depth of our sin will serve to show the grace of Christ to us. Think about it for a moment. We end with this strange, terse story of this man who, this young man who flees the presence of Christ. He's running from the presence of Christ in the garden naked. And you're like, what is going on? And at the same time, could it be that the Holy Spirit wants us to pick up on a couple key details there? that in this garden, there was someone fleeing from the presence of God naked and ashamed? When have you seen that play out before? 
Uh, perhaps in the opening pages of your Bible, you're reminded of the moment that Adam and Eve sinned against holy God. And then God, the presence of God in the garden says, Adam, where are you? In Genesis 3.10, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. See, after Adam disobeyed God, he, he ran from the presence of God. He recognized that he was naked and ashamed before a holy God. And this garden is a reminder of what took place in the first garden, that whenever we come with all of our sins and failures before a holy God, we are naked and exposed. The only hope that we have in our nakedness is that Christ would be gracious and clothe us with his own righteousness. Consider for a moment what Peter said. Whenever he's going back and forth with, with the disciples and Jesus, Jesus says that you will all fall away from me. And then what does Peter say? He says, even if I have to die with you, I will not betray you. I will not deny you. And yet what does the gospel say? Jesus is not saying you must die for me to prove your worth, to prove your loyalty. No, the gospel is that Jesus said, don't die for me. I will die for you. I have died for you. Going back to that moment in the garden where, where God said those fig leaves that you try to clothe yourself with are insufficient, but I will slay an animal to clothe you with its skin that it, its blood might be shed to make a substitute for your sins. And here, Christ is going to lay down his life to say to those that are naked and exposed in their sin and their shame, I have clothed you with my righteousness once and for all, that you may come before me. Just as Zechariah promised, the shepherd was struck. And Jesus himself would call himself the good shepherd in John 10, 14 through 15. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Consider for a moment how Christ hung on the cross. He hung on the cross, naked and ashamed, exposed before the world, that you might be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, that you could come before the Father. He was forsaken by the Father that you might enter the presence of God fully accepted. I wonder if in this moment, whenever the disciples fled, that they remembered the promise that Jesus gave, that he would gather them again in Galilee, because what happens on the morning that Jesus is raised in Mark 16, seven, just a couple chapters over, he tells the women as they're leaving the tomb, the angel tells the women as they're leaving the tomb, hey, remind my disciples that I will meet them again in Galilee. And the first words that he says to them is, peace be with you. And they fell away from him, sinned against him, and his first words to them is, peace be with you. And peace was because he was. May those words be a comfort to you this morning when you come before the holiness of God and you are exposed by the commands of God as one who has fallen short again and again as Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That is those who fall short and are exposed as sinners before God that we would see that we receive the grace of God through Christ. So Jesus gathers together what sin has broken through the power of his resurrection we see the gospel work on display as he gathers his disciples 
again, even though they would fail him in this way. We recognize that for all who fail in sin, that God is gracious toward them. That those who are scattered in sin can be gathered by the resurrection of Christ. Would you acknowledge your weakness and come to the fountain of this mercy again? Consider for a moment that it was this same night that Jesus knelt down, took on a servant's towel to wash the very feet that would flee from him. Jesus washed the very feet that would flee from him. How can this be a comfort to you? Thirsty brother or sister, I want to invite you again this morning to run to the fountain of grace, regardless of what this week has looked like. For those of you here who wander in darkness, I want you to see that Jesus is the light of the world. And in the same way that the sun at daybreak drives darkness back, Christ can illuminate your heart and make you whole. To those of you who sit here with frigid affections towards the things of God, may you bring yourself near the fire of the gospel and be warmed by his grace toward you. It is only the weak that will know the depth of the gospel's power and strength. And so we admit that we are weak, that we have often fled from Christ, but praise God, he came to us. He pursues us to make us whole. And so, so we take off our masks. We're not trying to pretend anything that we're not. We come before Christ and we say, Lord, we need you. We need you. We need your grace. We're dependent upon you. And the power of the resurrection then changes us. So, so that instead of those who run away from Christ, we are zealous, we are committed to him. And instead of those who hear the word of God, like, like Peter, and just say, no, 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 it's not like that. We hear the word of God and we want to submit to it. We say, yeah, God, what, I mean, absolutely, like form my life to this. And, and instead of being those who think that we're better than other people, like Peter did, we ask ourselves, how can we love other people? How can we care for other people? How can we cling to Jesus over anything? Because as we saturate our minds and hearts in the character of Christ and who he is to us, the response that should rise is, as Christ has been to me, so I will be to others. As Christ has been to me, so I will be to my spouse. As Christ has been to me, so I will be to others, so I will be to my coworkers, so I will be to the patients on my floor, so I will be to my clients, so I will be to my children. We could do a whole series on relationships, and I think that there's, there's a lot of power in that, and yet we come to this and say, man, teach me what Christ is like to me. And as I understand the depth of his grace and mercy and unconditional love, Lord, just help me to be like that to other people. The second contrast we find in this passage is that Jesus suffered as a servant to reign as victorious king. Jesus suffered as a servant to reign as victorious king. The first half of Mark's gospel is structured to show us that Christ is the king, the first eight verses. And then the, the last half is, is structured to show us that Christ is the suffering servant. We see that perhaps most evidently in the garden of Gethsemane. And once again, I believe we have a parallel between two gardens, the garden of Eden and the garden of Gethsemane, because what happened in the garden of Eden? There was the man, Adam, who in effect said, God, not your will, but mine. 
And through his disobedience, sin entered the world and sin spread to all mankind. And yet here we find Jesus in a garden. And what is his prayer? Unlike Adam's, he is the second Adam coming to fulfill where Adam had failed. And he says, not my will, but yours. And then through his act of obedience, as Romans 5 says, salvation will come to all who believe. As we look at this passage, I I think how many times had Mark heard Peter tell the story? How many times had Peter shared this with him? And whenever we look at this, we see that Peter witnessed the sorrow of Christ, the humanity of Christ. Is there any passage that perhaps shows the depth of Christ's humanity like this one does? I think it's probably worth noting here that Jesus experienced this grief and yet was without sin. This is informative for us, instructive, because I think uh, for some of us, we think that being sad is like a sin or that grieving or feeling overwhelmed by something is a sin. Uh, I I want you to see here, Jesus feels that, and yet what he does with it is run to the Father. May that be instructive. Your response to those feelings, not the feelings within themselves. And so we see here that Jesus is speaking to the Father. He falls on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. His prayer gives voice to the pain, and we see the suffering of Christ. Now, now he prays, not his will, but the Father's will. And I, I think we have to deal with this a little bit, right? Because Jesus is God, second person of the Trinity. He has a united Father with, or a united will with the Father. There aren't two wills within the person of God, uh, within the Godhead. And so what's going on here? Well, Jesus is speaking in his humanity. We don't divide the, you know, deity and humanity of Christ. And yet what we do recognize here is that Christ understands the depth of suffering that he is about to go through. And so in a very human way, he's saying, if this cup can pass, as I look at at what is before me, if there is some way that this pass, may it be. And yet he, he submits to the Father's will because this is the will of God, his own will. As Philippians 2 said, that he took on humanity seeing himself in the form of a servant, and we see that here. He says, not your will, but mine in his humanity, that God would be glorified. And it's interesting because we understand what takes place here in the suffering of Christ, that we are saved through Christ's suffering. Isaiah the prophet, about 700 years before this, would say in Isaiah 53, 11, out of the anguish of his soul, talking about Christ seven centuries before he would come. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Look to the cross. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death, and Christ came and died for you. Stack up your sins and see that Christ's work is sufficient for you. Christ is sufficient to save And he suffered in your place as your substitute to redeem you. He became a curse so that we might be known as children of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, us not being able to live up to the law's demands by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And that suffering of Christ The cross of Christ would lead to his crowning in exaltation. 
The passage that Hunter read earlier says this, verse eight, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We see this lowliness of Christ But what was the result? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The path to Christ being victorious king was being the suffering servant. The path to Christ's exaltation was the way of suffering. We see this, his whole life was suffering. He took on flesh, he was conceived and born into a sin-sick world. But not only that, he lived among the lowly. He experienced a life of human plight. His suffering became greater. He was tempted by Satan. He was harassed by his enemies. He was left and abandoned by his own followers. And one of the people that would call him friend betrayed him with a kiss. You understand the suffering that Christ went through? The sense of responsibility that he carried upon his shoulders was crushing. And in his darkest hour, he cried out upon the cross in the deepest pit of his suffering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the heavens were silent. But following that cry of distress came a cry of victory that would bring us life when Christ cries out, it is finished. And the suffering servant is exalted as victorious king over sin, Satan, and death. And that should give you great hope. That should give you life that only he can offer that. That Christ came and suffered for us and if Christ will suffer for you, he will certainly suffer with you. I think this will be a comfort to you this week. There was a, an article written a couple years ago by a guy named David Brooks. He's a writer for the New York Times, and uh, he, he tells the story. He, you know, the, the title of the article is, What Do You Say to Someone in Suffering? And he interviewed different people. He interviewed one woman that had this brain injury, and this brain injury caused her to um, just kind of fall on the ground. She wouldn't be able to hold herself up, and she would fall on the ground. And she said, you know, a lot of times people, well-meaning people around her would, would see her fall, and they would immediately just try to rush and, and pick her back up. They would try to, like, bring her back up onto her feet. And she said, sometimes people will try to do that, and I'm not even ready to stand back up again. I'm still just kind of catching my breath. And in the article, she said this. She said, I think people rush to help me because they are so uncomfortable with seeing an adult lying on the floor. But what I really need is for someone to get down on the ground with me. What I really need is someone to get down on the ground with me. And whenever we behold the suffering of Christ, we see a savior who is willing to get down onto the ground with us. As Hebrews 4.15 says that he's able to sympathize with our weakness. Have you been disappointed by people this week? Christ was. Have you been let down? Have you, have you experienced great grief? Christ can say, I've been there. And yet we look to him as exalted king who rules and reigns over everything and cares for us. Doesn't this teach us to bear other people's burdens in like manner? That we as Christ would be those who seek God's will and submit to God's word? Maybe you do that by saying, you know what? I'm gonna, I wanna submit to the will of God. And that means I need to be baptized. I want to live as Christ's victorious king over my life, which means I need to be part of a local church body. 
It, it means that I, if, if I'm going to submit to the will of God through the word of God, then I need to be in the word of God. I need to cry out to Christ in prayer because I've tried everything else and I'm insufficient to, to bear these burdens on my own. It teaches us to go to Christ, to bear other people's burdens. And I think it makes us humble as we share the gospel with other people. We talk about the love of Christ, not as experts, but as fellow beggars who found the bread of life, saying to a starving world, there is room at our table, come and eat. The third contrast we see is that Jesus drank the cup of wrath to offer us the cup of life. Jesus drank the cup of wrath to offer us the cup of life. Last week, we, we considered the Lord's Supper, this amazing meal that Christ has given us. And here, I want us to focus on the fact that we are able to celebrate the Lord's Supper because of the way that our Lord suffered, that he receives the cup of wrath, that we would be given the cup of life. Now, what is the cup that Jesus is referring to in the garden whenever he says, let this cup pass from me? This is not a literal cup that you can hold with your hands. He's speaking of a metaphorical cup that is rich with Old Testament history. Uh, we don't have time to consider all of the different places that this imagery of the cup is formed, but the cup is speaking of the just wrath of God toward sinners, the deserved judgment for sinning against a holy God. And here we see the love of God the Father by sending his son to drink the cup that we deserved to drink. Isaiah 51, 17 says that this is the cup of his wrath, the cup of staggering. In Psalm 75, Asaph talks about a cup of judgment for the wicked. And he says, for in the hand of the Lord, there's a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And this was the cup that was sat before Jesus. No mere human hands could lift this cup to their lips and survive. And yet Christ would come and he would take this cup for us. Uh, Christ would come and drink this cup as the most painful aspect of his suffering. It wasn't the whip that would strike his back or, or the nails that would be driven through his arms that would be the greatest cause of his suffering. It would be the wrath of God for sinful humanity upon him that would bring the greatest amount of suffering. And yet Jesus stares into the cup and drinks it on our behalf. I think about it like this for a moment. Uh, one of my favorite pastors tells the story of, you know, if you, if you were standing at the bottom of the Hoover Dam, picture that, you know, this 730 foot tall structure, uh, behind it holding 248 square miles of water. And, and you're at the very bottom and you begin to see a crack form. And then that crack becomes a slit and then, and then the whole dam just bursts. And now all of this water is rushing toward you, a 500 foot tidal wave rushing toward you. And right before your feet, completely unexpected, a chasm begins to open and there's this gap in the pavement before you. And as that tidal wave comes to crash in, it is completely absorbed in the chasm before you. So much so that not even the mist from the water makes your hair damp. He said, if you can picture that with your mind, then you somewhat understand what Christ has done in consuming the wrath of God on your behalf. You had no hope, you could not withstand it. And yet Christ absorbs it to the full in himself. 
that you would not taste one ounce of the wrath of God because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath in the garden and on the cross. This truth of propitiation is displayed in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that we might be counted righteous. Do you see your sin swirling in that cup? Think about how powerful the grace of God must be. I mean, consider the sin in this cup with the lies of Abraham, the drunkenness of Noah, the murder that Moses committed, the adultery of David, the denial of Peter, and whatever else you have added to it. And yet Christ drinks it in its full We celebrate an empty cup because we are people of the empty tomb. And Christ was raised victorious, offering us the cup of life because he fully drank the cup of God's wrath. So every time we come around the Lord's table, every time we take the Lord's supper, we come to that table, not as achievers or perfectionists, but those who come needy, thirsty, and hungry again, acknowledging that we are completely dependent on the love of Christ and the grace of God made known to us, that we deserve to be condemned in eternal hell. And yet God in his grace says, for all who repent of their sins and place their faith in my son, you will be saved. Here's we look at this book, we have this firsthand view of, of Peter witnessing the forgiveness of Christ, the power of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and ultimately salvation. That's Peter's firsthand experience. Let me ask, is it yours? Do you know the power of God's grace? That you could name your sins before him and see them nailed to the cross that you would have a relationship with God? Perhaps today, as Caden read earlier, behold, today is the day of salvation. Maybe today's the day that you make that decision. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I. I need to recognize that Jesus suffered for me and to submit to him. And there's just some ways that clearly I'm not, I'm not submitting to the will of God right now and I'm running from it. It's today the day that you say, Lord, I repent. I turn for you. I'm gonna, I'm gonna grab kind of my inner circle, my Peter, James, and John. I want them around me to help me walk through this in obedience. Maybe, maybe we could be that as your church family. Maybe you'd look at this and say, you know what? I, I think I wanna receive the cup of life with greater gratitude today. I want my life to reflect the gratitude that I have for God's grace and that we would experience experience the the salvation that Christ gives through his suffering afresh with a first-hand point of view. Let's pray.